So it is really uh, my great pleasure um, to have Hanan Sheikh with us uh, today. Um, some of you, uh, I assume most of you would know uh, at least some of her work. Um, she's widely translated um, with several novels. That, but some of them are over there. Um, and, but uh, uh, Hanan usually writes only in Arabic, but she also had an adventure in English which we're going to know about uh, today. Some of her most famous work, which is now taught even in high schools, actually, I heard in the United States, for example, the story of Zahra. Um, some of you would know Beirut uh, Blues, uh, in Arabic, Beirut Beirut. Um, the latest one is uh, uh, the versions of London Stan, which is, in a sense, a sequel or an expansion of another one, Imra'atan Arashat al-Bahar, Two Women on the Beach, uh, which was before, and maybe we can hear about that. She also has uh, published collections of short stories and plays, um, at least two plays, um, Paper Husband and Dark Afternoon, Dark, Dark Afternoon Tea. Dark Afternoon Tea. Hmm. Um, I think they were staged in English, right? Yeah, uh, so today we're basically we're going to have a conversation, probably for about half an hour or so, and then we'll turn over to Marina Warner, and Marina Warner uh, is now uh, a fellow of All Souls. Um, as you know, Marina writes in all sorts of fields, um, but she's a world expert on uh, tale and, and uh, les fables in general. Um, she... Uh, one of Stranger Than Magic, for example, Charm States in the Arabian Nights, 2011. Uh, the symbol gives rise uh, to thought, 2014. Once upon a time, a short history of fairy tale. And Marina will uh, have uh, later will speak on truth to power, narrating women in the ransom tale. Uh, that will be followed by Claire Galen, who is uh, affiliated with the Body Library, but usually spends her time in the University of Montpellier. And that she would be speaking, retelling the Arabian Nights reflections on what it means to become the new Sahibat Adar Shahrazad. But before all that, Hanan gave us a very intriguing title called The Thousand One Nights and I, or How a British Theatre Director Took Me by the Hand and Showed Me uh, What I Already Knew. And I was very intrigued by this. Maybe we should begin by starting with that. Uh, yeah. I never thought that I'll be reading the whole uh, book, the volumes of uh, 1001 Nights. I wasn't interested in them at all. I mean, I was a little bit when I was a child because uh, they used to, um, to have some stories uh, uh, transmitted uh, by the radio. And I, I, I love the, um, the voice of the actress, uh, her name, the Egyptian actress was Zuzu Nabil. And it was fascinating to hear everything, you know, the, uh, the clamor, the voices, the music, and the voice saying at the end, Mawlai, my lord. I, I was fascinated by it. But um, I read a few, uh, few stories for children. And, um, and then uh, I stopped at, at that point, but not caring at all, especially because in uh, Lebanon, when I knew that I'm interested in writing and reading uh, literature, 
um, I, I was um, concentrating on the modern and the contemporary uh, literature. And I, uh, I wanted to uh, actually, uh, we, we considered 1001 Night and Flayla Walayla like a folklore, uh, folkloric book, uh, uh, volumes, and it is uh, decayed in the olden times, and the language wasn't amazing, it was flat, and uh, and also I I didn't, especially when I became 15, 16 years old, I didn't like Shahrazad, and not only me, I mean most of the women <laughs> didn't like Shahrazad in, in, in my neighborhood and uh, in Lebanon, and maybe in the Arab world, because we thought, oh my God, I mean, she is, she's a prisoner of the king. She's going to sit every night and tell him a story so he wouldn't kill her. Why doesn't she do something else, you know, kill him or poison him or, or, you know, kill him with a dagger or something like that. Um, but when I came to, um, I was very, very much interested in uh, Najib Mahfouz and Yahya Haqqi and Tayyip Saleh and even uh, women uh, writers like Latifa uh, uh, Zayat, Layla Balbaki, uh, you know, I, uh, and uh, especially in Lebanon at that time we had three amazing, amazing uh, literary magazines uh, for Adab and Khwar and Shar and Al-Adab. And we would read short stories, we would read uh, serious contemporary uh, work, and who, who, who cared about, uh, who cares about uh, One Thousand and One Night. Um, and then, when it happened by, by accident that I was uh, translated the first time, my third novel, Story of Zahra, was translated into French, and and, um, and it won a prize, and then in English. This is when the reviewer started to, uh, to call me the new Shahrazad. And I said, oh, but never mind. At least I'm writing about, uh, about my uh, novels and uh, reviewing them. Who cares? Let, let, them, let, let them call me the new Shahrazad. And I, I thought, well, maybe I should start reading. I mean, maybe one one time. I mean, why why hating this uh, character? And uh, and uh, I, I should really give it a chance. And I started uh, reading few stories. I I I, I liked these stories, and uh, but I didn't read the whole volume. So the supper, the British director. Whom, uh, whom I liked and loved his work, especially in Midsummer Night Dream. Uh, uh, he, uh, uh, he presented it. He had a play with uh, five or, or, or six uh, Indian dialects, and uh, it was amazing. And it, it went all over the world. And uh, so when he approached me, I, I didn't tell him anything. I didn't say, no, I don't like the Arabian Nights or Al-Fayla or Layla. Or, I said, yes, 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 I would love to. But we have to, uh, uh, to have uh, like another 10 Arab writers to, uh, to write. And I write a story, so and so. Collaborative. Uh, collaborative. Yes. He said, no, 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 only you. And, uh, 
I was a little bit worried that uh, I'm going to change or to adapt, and uh, it was too, you know, it was 2,000 um, uh, uh, pages, the, the volume. I, I was working on a novel as well, and, um, but, but I, I became very tempted. And I started my, my, he used to call it Hanan, it's a journey. So I, I went into this journey. <laughs> it took me three years. And, and um, as, as readers of the book would have noticed, um, you were not really translating. You were doing a process of adaptation. So would you maybe to talk to us a little bit about the process of adaptation yes. that you went through. Yes. Um, I, um, I started... Uh, at the beginning, by uh, adapting in the form of a play, um, a script, and and uh, and Tim um, said, "No, please, I want you to write like you always write, short stories or uh, or your novels. Forget about uh, dramatizing it. You're not going to dramatize it." Um, so I um, I. And I started writing in a modern, uh, modern style. He said, "No, no, the the the, the spring is there. Consider it as a spring. <laughs> this is the. You don't need to go around and and uh, and try to uh, to use other uh, textures of language and other styles. It's all there for us. And even when I started, for example." I'll give you an example in um, the three ladies of Baghdad uh, when the uh, shopper went down uh, went to the market to buy things I, I said she went and bought vegetables said no 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 you have to to go uh, to go on and like one thousand in one thousand and one night in Afrela Leila you should say she bought the uh, the apples from uh, Damascus, the uh, the uh, grapes from uh, uh, Cairo or whatever. I forgot now from where. <laughs> yeah, and um, and so I I started uh, I I understood immediately, and the the difficulty was to to choose stories, to choose stories. Because every time we read a story, we were fascinated, he and me, and we would say, oh my God, this is a story has to be in the, in the play, has to be has this one and that one and that one. And we were like in front of jewels and gems, and we, we didn't know what to choose. Yeah. It was really very difficult. We used so, to so meet once a week. So we ended up choosing 19. Yeah, but I'll um, tell you how. Yeah, I want to tell us maybe yes, why these specific stories. Yes, I'll tell you, I'll tell you how, how did mm -hmm. we choose them. We thought we have to have a plot mm -hmm. and a theme. Why? What, what do we want to say in this place? And we're not going only to, to give stories. Because stories, if they have no theme and effect between all of them, then they, they won't. They, are not, uh, they won't really be very effective. So we thought of the framework of the Arabian Nights, one thousand and one night. And we thought, well, that's it. It is men against, uh, it is the battle between the sexes, men and women. 
and this is what we ought to do. And it is in front of us, it's very obvious. And this is when we started to, to choose stories, which we thought that uh, men mis, uh, mistreated women. And um, we started with the three dervishes. And, uh, uh, and then um, uh, from, from, no, we started with the fishermen. Uh, and um, and uh, and then we, uh, uh, we we thought that but the fisherman he has no wife um, but the, the story is amazing what shall we do I said well let 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 let, let us think let, let us take the fisherman and make him the um, the porter so it would be, it would be good. He said, fine, and this is what we did. The war between the sexes. Yeah. Um, and obviously, this, this also led you to, to, uh, to change the ending a little bit. Um, those who plan to read the book, maybe this will spoil it for them, but uh, yeah. <laughs> um, The Thousand Nights ends in a very particular way, more yeah. or less social transformation into a family and children yes, and so on. Children but, but, and not family. Here, but not no, here. No, no. No, because you can't you mm. can't do that to, to Shahrazad, you know. She suffered not only to Shahrazad, to all these mm. uh, girls who, who were killed, who were slaughtered every night. You can't all of a sudden you I mean she humanized Shahrazad, but uh, but not to the extent that she will forget what he did and he learned a lesson but it's it wasn't enough so i thought that um, uh, it, it has to end uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll leave it an open ending but saying that leaving an op uh, open ending what i did that to do this, uh, the, uh, the battle of the sexes, the war between uh, women and men. Men are saying that, oh, we uh, had, uh, we um, treated the women unjustly because they were wily and crafty and we, we don't trust them. It's like Shahrayat. So, and women, but but who and women are, mis uh, but but who bestowed the misfortunes on women, men? So, to to uh, to reach this uh, this point, what we did, I chose we chose both of us together stories, which uh, women will will tell the caliph, all the stories what men did, uh, not, not their stories only, other stories, and the men would choose other stories where women were very wily and, and mischievous. And the caliph at the end said, well, I think you have to get, uh, you, you, have, you can't live on your own, you women, all of you. Uh, there were five, the, the, uh, the girls of Baghdad. We, you can't, you, you have to, to, to live with men and um, you have to live a normal life. No women, uh, women shouldn't be living on their own. And this is when the woman said no to the caliph. So in a way, it is like I had the um, 
parallel to Shahriyar. That that's why I uh, I chose this ending. Let me read. Let me read the ending. Yes, this is a good point. Maybe to to read a little bit of. Yes, I read the ending first in Arabic, so all of you know Arabic, no? لكن الذي كان صاح في الأرجاء وتسلل نور خفيف إلى القاعة عندما وقفت المرأة المتسوقة وقالت هل أتلو عليكم قصة؟ ابتسم لها الخليفة وقال بالطبع قصي علي حكاية أو حتى حكايتين فقالت المتسوقة اتفق أن كان لهذا الديك الذي تسمعون صياحه الآن أجداد في بلاد بعيدة هي الهند والهند الصينية في أيام الملك شهريار والصبية الخارقة والشجاعة شهرذات التي اختارت أن تتزوج من الملك شهريار رغم علمها بأنها ستقتل في اليوم التالي كعشرات العذارة قبلها من بنات الأمراء والتجار وقادة العسكر حيث كان الملك يأمل قتلهن بعد أن يفض بقارة كل منهن كل ليلة مثير الاستياء وغضب شعبه الصامت الذي اكتفى بالابتهال إلى الله أن ينتقم لهم من الملك شهريار ويبتليه بالأمراض الفتاكة عقابا له على إجرامه في, جنس في حق جنس النساء عامة بعد أن فوجئ برؤية زوجته وهي تضاجع عبيدها لكن شهرزاد التي كانت ابنة الوزير نفسه المكلف بتنفيذ حكم الموت على هؤلاء الفتيات قررت وألحت على الزواج من الملك كي توقف عرس الدم ذاك رغم ما أصاب والدها من هلع ورعب وكانت خطة شهرزاد هي أن تروي للملك قصة كل ليلة على أن تتوقف فجرا عند نقطة حاسمة مثيرة من الرواية حتى يظل الملك متشوقا ومتحمسا لسماع بقية الحكاية في الليلة التالية ولحسن الحظ تكللت خطة شهرزاد الراقية والمسالمة بالنجاح ومن قصة الصياد والجني التي ابتدأت بها في الليلة الأولى أخذت القصص تتكاثر وتتكدس حتى أصبحت كومة كبيرة تماما كبدرة التمر تنمو نخلة عملاقة تتدلى من سعفها المئات من حبات التمر ثم لتصبح هذه القصص بعد وقت قصير جرع شهر زاد أمام السيف المشهر على عنقها كنذير موت عند ساحة الفجر وأدمن الملك على سماع هذه القصص وكأنها تنومه تنويما مغناطيسيا فتهدأ مشاعره الحادة والعنيفة ويعتدل مزاجه إلا أن حدث ذات يوم. This is the ending. So what happened that يوم? So in a way, in a way, there is something else going to happen. It's yeah. Open story. And obviously, translators have always taken liberty with the Thousand One Nights. The first translation, obviously, created a lot of stories we don't so on. So do you think there was something in the in the nights itself that gives people the freedom to do this, or do you yourself felt you have a specific right or uh, inclination to take freedom uh, with the stories? What, what, yes, what's I think I think Alf Layla Walayla, the one thousand and one night. 
are still alive and they are not dying at all. They're still surviving. Why? Because people tend to change in them. They take deliberately and, and, and add things here and there. And this is the beauty, beauty of them. Well, at the beginning, I was a little bit scared, but uh, Tim encouraged me. And I remember I called two writers in Egypt, and I said, this is what I'm doing. What, what, what do you think? Uh, they said, yes. I mean, they encouraged me. And, um, and while we're talking now, maybe someone is, is trying to, to change uh, and, and add stories. And, um, I, I, I had great liberty. In, in changing some of, of the stories. Um, yes. Uh, so, so maybe for the um, end, ending, yeah. ending in English, we'll probably read it last uh, to make the it ending, a proper yeah, proper ending. Yeah. But, but the one thing intrigued me, because what I know um, of Hanani Sheikh is that not only she writes only in Arabic, but she's one of those writers who insists mm. on writing only in Arabic. And then a friend of mine told me, ah, did you see Hanan's book in English? I said, what Hanan's book do you write in English? A thousand more nights. So that's how it first came. So that was that surprised me. And I was wondering if you could well, tell I, us more about the switch of language. Yes. And, yeah. yeah, when Tim asked me, I, he said, it's going to be in Arabic, Hanan. Yeah. And um, all the actors, the cast, are going to be Arab. And you, and, which was, you know, it's what happened. He, uh, he went all over the Arab world. He went even to Yemen and to Iraq, everywhere. And there were 24 Arab actors from Damascus, from amazing. And also four musicians. When I wrote the first... Um, the first episode, and he gave it to him in Arabic. He said, I don't, I don't read Arabic. Although he was in Alexandria, I, I thought he, he would be with, you know, either who would read it to him or translate it to him. He said, um, no, you, uh, but you're, you're going to write it in English, no? I said, no, 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 I don't write in English at all, no. He said, well, um, you write it in English as well, as well. and um, I said, I don't know how to write in English. I've never written in English. Sometimes I write lectures, and he said, well, try. I want your voice. As, as you're talking to me now, you, 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 you write it. Don't translate, write it in English. I said, I'll try. And it was a very, very, very difficult task because, I'll tell you why, because Tim had this page, for example, divided into two, the English and the Arabic. He has to know every word the actors, you know, are going to use. <coughs> so it, it had to be identical, it's, uh, the same, yeah. And I couldn't do that. It was very difficult. The idioms differed, and uh, so I, I kept translating or writing, uh, translating from the Arabic. I'll write it first in Arabic. Mm. And then I'll try to write in English to translate uh, to the English language. And then I would say, no, but it doesn't work when I translate this to English. The items are different. The, the proverbs, uh, this proverb doesn't work in English. So I would change the Arabic to fit the English, and I changed the English to fit the Arabic. Uh, it, it was, I tell you, 
But it was it was rewarding. It's, 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 it was, a, it was really rewarding. Yeah. Yeah. There is a good topic for uh, at least an MA thesis to come and talk to you how we did this translation. Um, but what I'm also interested in is, is uh, obviously you went through this process which is new to you. Yes. And then you went on to write in Arabic after yeah. that. So yeah. my, I was wondering how much impact um, that had on your subsequent writing in Arabic. In other words, returning back to Arabic what did you carry with you or not carry with you, if mm. you like? I, I want to go back to when I start reading the whole stories of One Thousand and One Night, I discovered that some of the stories, as if I, I knew them, uh, the proverbs and the adjectives, I think the Arabian Nights, One Thousand and One Night, was infiltrated in our daily life in the Arab world. I mean, I remember when I, I used to ask the religious uh, um, teacher, because my, I was sent to a Muslim school uh, from age of uh, 6 to the age of 14, and I would always ask the, um, the teacher about things, and one and he used to answer my question, but he was fed up with me. And then he talked to another teacher who said, stop asking this teacher about religion, about things. Are you tawadud? She told me. And I thought, why is she telling me tawadud? Who is tawadud? But she said, yalla, go away. Are you tawadud? And then I, <laughs> I stopped. I said, oh, now I know. <laughs> Who is Tawadud? The concubine Tawadud. I mean, people, the Arabian Nights was, was in our culture. They taught us so many things, so many things. Um, yeah, so I, um, I, I started to, um, to feel that, uh, yes, I, uh, but I've written, I've written, uh, I would tell myself when I read the Dalila al Muhtala. The, uh, the, the, uh, the Wiley. But I, I had the same character. Long time ago, I wrote about Amira in, uh, in, uh, only in London. Uh, only, uh, Amira in only in London, a Moroccan prostitute who pretended to be a, um, a uh, princess. And this is how she lived in, in London. She would go to the, <laughs> she would go to the banks and pretended that, uh, and she would hire uh, Rolls Royce and girls, companions, and she would go to the banks and she would stand in front uh, and say, oh, I'm going to faint because the money hasn't arrived from my, from my father, the king, or whatever. <laughs> and all these men would come and say, oh, what do you need, our princess, what do you need? And I said, so before, I mean, before reading the Al-Flayla um, Layla, I found myself that uh, I have characters similar to, to One Thousand and One Night. But, yes, when I started uh, writing my novel, I, I felt as well that, first of all, I became very influenced. To, to be by, uh, to write about anything like in the uh, one thousand and one night 
the uh, to be uh, to write about fantasy. Why not? It works because in the nights, um, many fantastical things happen between jinns and uh, and the human beings. They were uh, they were like you know like friends or like lovers. They, I could read something now, and I'll tell you what I did here. So I thought uh, it, uh, read, uh, working on one servant and one night helped me to, to not to be a little bit rigid in my writing. I could open up and write whatever. For example, in uh, the Virgins of London Stand, I, I thought like Delilah, um, the Wiley, and uh, I, I made the two girls do, do tricks on the Islamists. Um, what I did again, <laughs> I mean, I did a lot, lots of things. It, it gave me, I had a robot, someone talking about robots. So it, it gave me all the freedom in the world. Excellent. Well, well we, we have the. We left the ending on a on a cliffhanger, and maybe this is time to actually. Yes, I think. They, or, uh, or but do, do, you do you mind if I read uh, from um, a story which I uh, I uh, I exchange the whole story from one thousand and one night and put my own story. I read only one sure. one page, and uh, it will give you a flavor. You took, all, you took all the freedom you wanted, so we can. <laughs> I mean, do we have time? No, we do. <coughs> we started at uh, 4.10. Okay. This is from uh, the mistress of the house estate, Sahibat al-Dar. When I went down to the manna from heaven trees by the pond to find out whether the manna was right in the distance, in the distance I could see the enormous colorful bird drinking from the pond. To my astonishment, I watched as the bird started to shake and shake until a man emerged from beneath its feathers. I put my hand to my mouth gasping and suppressing a scream of confusion and amazement. I walked towards him as though hypnotized. Feeling no fear, the man was looking at the house and did not seem to have noticed me. He was not like any other man I had ever encountered. He was so beautiful. Praise God who resembles no one, I murmured, for I had never seen a man handsome as he. He had a face like the crescent moon, with rosy cheeks and eyes like those of a holy, as if God has created him to bewitch and enchant. I calmed myself and didn't try to catch his attention, but waited and watched as he walked very carefully towards our terrace. Then he entered his feathers again and flew away, leaving me to stare at the sky speechless. So the next day she went to the pond again. She liked him. The same bird flew back, landed, shook and shook, and when he had become a man, he saw me standing not far from him. He smiled at me, and I reached out and touched his feathers, which were soft and beautifully decorated. Who are you, and what are you doing here? I asked him. But have you forgotten that you yourself invited me? Did I not hear you say the other night, as you sat with your sisters, 
where is the man who would not deceive me and steal my money like your husband did to you? Show him to me, for God's sake. I am that man you called for, and I hurried to comply with your wishes of what you may rest assured my beauty. He took my hand in his hand, uh, in his, and when I recalled and moved away, he said, do not be alarmed, here is my oath. My eye will not look at one dinar of your money and my hand will not touch one piece of bread from your table. On the contrary, I'm planning to have you sleep in bed of gold, eat from golden plates and bathe in water of gold. But who are you really? I asked as I tried to still the hundreds of butterflies which fluttered in my heart in spite of myself. He bowed and kissed my two hands and my feet. I'll be your obedient servant until doomsday. I wish to marry you according to the rule of God and his prophet. At these words, I changed my opinion of men. In the blink of an eye, I took him to a cave in our orchard. And there we kissed like Adam and Eve. And to my surprise, I let him lift up my dress. And what would happen between a man and a woman happened between us. While I prayed to God to forgive me, assuring the Almighty that we would draw up our marriage contract first thing in the morning. Soon I found myself drowning in ecstasy and pleasure for the first time in my life. I then slept at his feet. And when I woke, we sat content and fulfilled, holding the sun and the moon together. I asked him once more, you haven't told me who you are. Are you the son of a prince bewitched, one of the greatest merchants, or a nobleman? I will reveal my identity to you on one condition. You must promise me that no matter what your ears hear me revealed, you will never leave me. I clasped my heart and felt myself break into a sweat as I said, I promise on my memory of my parents that I will never leave you unless you tell me you are the shaitan, Satan himself. The man laughed, God save us from Satan. I am the son of the king Azrak, blue, <coughs> the king of jinnis, the enemies of shaitan, Satan, and my father lives in the Al-Qub citadel, and he has 600,000 jinnis who die in the deepest seas and fly in the vast sky. I have nine brothers, each of whom carry the name of our father, Azrak Blue, and we fly here and there in God's wildest world. I caught my breath and said, Glory to God, the Almighty, the Powerful. Thank you, God, for sending me this flying man. <laughs> Maybe we should leave the ending for them yes. to discover. Yes. <laughs> so thank you very much for okay, your patience you. with this. And uh, please join me in thanking Hanan Sheikh for sharing with you. So just to change scenes. Do you want to sit down or what? Yeah, I'll, 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 I might stand. Just to, okay, so, yeah. Well, I'll just see. I'll use one of the chairs for a table. Okay. Can I just, 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 can I
short story. discussion with Mohammed Salah. Um, I was actually going to begin with the theme of the wily woman, because the frame tale of the Arabian Nights, Twelve More Nights, is um, a very insistent theme in Middle East literature, and also those of you who read medieval Western literature will also recognize it. The trope of the crafty woman, especially the lustful and disobedient woman, who secretively and treacherously does something behind her husband's back, goes all the way back to Genesis, and it continues. And, and, and the interesting quality of the Thousand and One Nights is the way that it both rehearses this theme and embroiders on it and confronts it. Um, and long before Hanan dramatized the stories for Tim Supple's staging, and then retold them in the book. And actually, one of the things that perhaps wasn't clear from the discussion is that there are two texts, really. There's this, there's the book. Um, the book yeah. which reads as a... As, as a, a dramatization. Which is reads as a series of tales. Yes. Yeah. And then there's the dramatization, which, of course, is different because yes. it has elements of the recounting, but yes. not and dialogue. But it isn't the whole thing. You won't find this on stage. So there are two parallel um, creations. Um, she she's, has participated in this argument about the wiles of women, um, which shades into the intelligence of women, the knowledge of women, and the debate around that. Um, she's looked at that very boldly and frankly in her work. And I think that one of the ways that she can be compared to the figure of Shahrazad, even though she didn't like it herself, as she told us earlier, is in the um, courage of her honesty and as, as well as her storytelling skills. Now, in this uh, um, short story that comes in this book called Road Stories, one of your short stories, she's yeah. a marvelous short story writer, um, this is called the, um, the Eye That Sees, and it's set in the Victorian Albert Museum. Mm -hmm. And there's a guard who's from Yemen, and a painter comes in and is interviewed, and she's a painter also from Yemen. And um, she paints the eye, the protective eye in various ways. And um, the narrator remembers the, uh, the first person of the guard in the museum from Yemen remembers that. Um, I'm sorry. She, yeah, no, she, she is talking, sorry. She is talking within the hearing of the guard in the museum to a television crew. And she says, a realization began to crystallize within me. I began to understand why I kept gazing into the mirror that way. I was asserting my right to look, really look, to delve into the world around me and ask questions, even if those questions made people turn away in anger or apathy or fear. Questions big and small about boys and girls, about our life and traditions, about nature and the meaning of it all. Once, when I had been repeatedly shushed, I found myself yelling, not only at my mother, but at everyone, 
including my younger sister, who was in the garden playing. Why are we created with eyes, then? Isn't it so we can see? And with the greatest urgency, I rushed to draw an eye, as if it were a matter of life or death. Well, the eyes, and it's also a recurrent metaphor in the Arabian Nights, what is seen and what is hidden from sight, and the knowledge that women bring when they are the beholders, and the knowledge that they are allowed to admit to. But at the same time, as we hear stories of the, in the frame story of sexual deception, of lustful appetite of women, um, this, this form of wiliness shades again into the stratagem that Sherazade decides to put in motion. And you all know that. She decides that she will, as it were, entrap the Sultan into changing his mind about killing her through her storytelling. So she is, she does figure in the frame tale as a wily woman. At this point, she's using the wiles of her art rather than her, her adulterous desires mm -hmm. um, to, to practice her deceptions. So, but it's still within the tradition, this Arabic and medieval European tradition, it's still very much present there that she's, she's cunning. And then what happens is that the literary trope changes over the, t over the arc of the whole stories of the knights into a different one, which is the mirror of princes. Now that is also a medieval form that is traditional and very well known in, the, in medieval Europe as well. And that is the kind of text that instructs the listener, sometimes the embedded listener, so it's the prince in the story, in this case, the sultan in the story listening, or it's us listening, uh, instructs the receiver of the story to think differently. So you get the, the wiles of women becomes the content of the Arabian Nights, but the mode that Shahrazad mobilizes is the, this, the mirror of princes. So she moves it into a, um, a, a kind of fabulous tradition that we all know best from Aesop. And the Aesop um, group of stories, which go back to some of the older stories in existence, the Indian Panchatantra, um, exist within the Arabic tradition, a very, very familiar text, which is the Kalila Wadimna, in which what is happening is the stories are being told to the, to the figure in power about how to conduct himself. And it's, the figure in power is, in my experience, always, always male. So the, the subordinate figure who talks back to the figure in power speaks the truth to power from a subordinate position. And sometimes the, 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 um, the, the jackal in the... Um, in the Kalida Wadimna, is, um, is um, sometimes female, but it's always a subordinate figure. So, and that the thrust of the text is to change, to exert power and influence over, over the target. Now, the, the figure of the rats, and, and, and um, in um, the foreword to the Thousand One Nights, Hanans, she says, I came to see that her weapon, Shahrazad's weapon, was art at its best, her endless invention of all those magnificent stories. So there the identification is with the cunning tongue of the, of the intelligent, intelligent woman taking charge of her destiny in order to change the mind of the sultan. Uh, the ransom tale is a term that the wonderful scholar of the knights, Mia Gerhardt, brought into circulation for this active form of narrative, a story that sets out to save its 
narrator. And other literary critics have called affiliated stories when life hangs on solving a riddle, neck riddle stories. So it's the idea that your the knife is hanging, the, the, the axe is hanging on your neck. And that's the case of Odysseus and the Sphinx. We know that Odysseus has to face the test of the riddle and in order to and he answers it and thereby saves his life. And the best book I've come across about this theme, which is related to the knights, is um, the Eleanor Cook's Enigmas and Riddles in Literature, 2006. Um, so, um, so again, um, um, so it, and so she's taken, she's taken the story of Dalila the Wily, which you mentioned several times, um, and as, this is a classic tale of female cunning, secretiveness and danger, and has made it, if you read it, it's the most wonderfully funny, joyously funny um, version. So here she's up to, Dalila is up to every trick, um, but she becomes, for us, an exhilarating instrument of narrative pleasure. As she gets the better of one of her adversaries after another, all of them better placed socially, this is the ultimate vindication of the underdog, or you could say, the under bitch. Now, she has counterparts in the Arabian Nights in Marjana, whom we all know from Ali Baba, and not a story that Hanan decided to choose, um, who's the clever slave, we all know it, who helps her master and is rewarded for it. But Hanan has set aside that story, I think very um, specifically, in favor of the transgressive independent agent, Dalila. So Ali Baba is about getting married in an upwardly mobile way. The Dalila, the Wiley story, is a different story of a successful intervention on her own behalf. So, now one of the, I just recently reviewed the new, you've probably read about it, the new collection that is, was found. It's a 15th century manuscript. It's a little earlier than, um, 14th century manuscript, a little earlier than the earliest manuscript of the Arabian Nights. The, the, the scholars discuss this kind of issue about dating a lot. Um, and that Robert Irwin, who's the editor, believes that this is earlier in general. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the ways that one could see from within evidence within the story that it's earlier is that this collection contains many misogynist stories about um, all the different um, themes that we've been talking about, about women, but it doesn't have the frame tale. So it doesn't actually include ransom tale. There is no plot to that gives an ironical or undermines the misogyny in the stories. They are presented straight. Um, we don't have the frame showing that they're being used to be um, overturned. And I think that it really, in, in my view, that this, this actual absence weakens this considerably and makes an interesting comparison to, um, to the 1001 Nights because of the lack of double meaning going on. So we, we simply, though they're very amusing, and some of the most misogynist stories are quite extraordinary in their extravagance, um, the, um, a, a, an invention of incident, they are um, not, I think, as achieved because of this lack. Uh, the path to the knights, as mentioned earlier, I think can be traced in Hanan's earlier work. And I want to look now at The Locust and the Bird. Um, I, don't, I don't know if, how many of you know it. Um, it was published in 2009, translated by Roger Allen, I think rather well, mm -hmm. rather beautiful. Yes. Um, 
And it's a luminous and poignant work. It's what's sometimes called an autobiographiction, um, because it's a sort of memoir and fiction. And it's difficult, it reads absolutely truthfully. But of course, it's entirely invented, because um, what Hanan has done is project herself into the voice of her own mother, her real mother, that the mother in the book is a personality created through language, Hanan's language, Kalima. And at the very beginning of the book, Halima wants Hanan to write her story. And at the very end, the daughter writes, My mother wrote this book. She is the one who spread her wings. I just blew the wind that took her on the long journey back in time. And the book in the middle, between the foreword and the epilogue, is an act of ventriloquy, truth-telling, and vindication. Through the sympathetic identification of the daughter with her mother, with a mother who abandoned her and her sister when they were little girls to the man she loved. It does what literature can do. It enters into a situation of fraught complexity and pain, holds it steadily in mind without hypocrisy or pretense, owns up to it and thereby transforms it. For those involved, not least for the daughter herself, Hanan, in the book, the plot stays the same what actually happened, but why it happened unfolds, and as it does so, it changes the story. Through seeing it through the eyes of the protagonist, the mother, Kalima, her daughter's view changes and our view changes. Now, for example, there is a story of female duplicity, which Hanan had written before as the Persian carpet. It returns as a chapter in the book. And in this story, the, the Persian carpet is stolen from the paternal house, where the little girls are, and taken to the lover's house, the future husbands. And then, Kalima, the mother, when the, when the carpet is found to be missing, blames it on someone lower a man who's blameless. And of course, this, in the first story, is absolutely shocking. I mean, it's a really shocking um, crime. But we are so involved by the time we're in The Locust and the Bird that we actually see the motivations, the cramped life, the, the conditions, the, 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 the oppression under which Kalima has been living, the way she's been almost sold as a child, um, bride, and so forth, and how she needs to have possessions in her house. It, the whole thing changes morally, ethically, and, and indeed um, and metaphorically. So the ransom here is affected by the alchemy of the insights in the writing. And what was known at the beginning has been transvalued in emotional meaning by the end. Kalima can be recognized for her courage, the bad mother metamorphoses into the heroine and exemplar, exemplar through the storytelling of her daughter. The woman who was muted by her circumstances, by her illiteracy, I didn't mention that earlier, but it's going to become an important issue, by her illiteracy and arranged marriage and shameful divorce has indeed grown wings on, her, on the voice of her daughter. And it ends, um, the last paragraph written in Hanan's voice about her mother, um, goes like this. I caught myself muttering, and here is Hanan, writing about her mother, 
who loved and suffered, who ran away, who raised her fist against the rules and traditions of the world into which she was born, and who transformed her lies into a lifetime of naked honesty. So I think you see there the actual same move that Shahrazad operates in the Arabian Nights, which is you tell the bad stories, but you tell them in such a way that you change the audience's responses and indeed your own consciousness of why those things happened. Now, ransom can also be a kind of exchange based on sacrifice. Um, and Shahrazad, of course, offers herself up as <coughs> a danger of execution. In Catholic terms, in my childhood, Christ gives his life as a ransom for our sins. Mm -hmm. So the world tilts towards self-immolation on the one hand, and on the other, redress of wrongs. Now, the feminist revisionings of tradition, and Hanan al-Sheikh is definitely in that, in that lineage, um, since her earliest novels, the story of Zara and the tales of the sound of Myrrh. Um, the feminist revision things have been fully invested in both these tendencies. Through the act of writing, the writer risks breaking with security of family and society. The author testifies, and as all first-hand witnesses experience, thus places herself in jeopardy. I mean, that's true even of soft feminism. Uh, such as my own. I mean, it brought me into, when I was young, it brought me into tremendous um, conflict with my parents who simply could not understand why I wanted to do certain things independently. And, that your, and Hanan's novels are completely full of this kind of resistance. And her novels have been banned in several Middle Eastern countries precisely because of their honesty about women's lives. So the locust and the bird re-knits the broken bonds between Kalima and Hanan, and while doing so, reveals the profound resemblance of the mother and daughter, their spirited grasp of life and thought, and the right to feel and to shatter the prescribed ways of being a woman. There is an exchange of mirrorings of identity in the book. But in another purely literary way, the locust and the bird continues the lineage of fabulism, the Aesopian tradition. And it was very interesting when you mentioned that you, know, you felt it had infiltrated without even being consciously there. Because I think your language, the proverbial imagery in particular, has a terrifically strong um, relationship to um, Arabic um, fabulism. Now, the book's title is taken from a riddling fable about love, which um, Hanan tells at the very beginning. And throughout, Kalima's memories are couched in this pictorial language made up of natural phenomena birds and flowers, taken from songs and the Quran, from legends and folklore and proverbs, and no doubt here and there from her own vivid powers of observation. But a riddle, it's a riddle, um, I, don't, I don't know if you would like to read it. I feel mm -hmm. awkward mm -hmm. reading your own work. Please go ahead. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, we've got to stop. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, okay. So, um, um, well, you could read it later. Okay. It's, um, it's about the, the bird and the locust, and it's a riddle. And I think that there, the, um, um, there we have um, something that relates very strongly to Hanan's relationship to the Arabian Nights, and that is that riddles depend frequently on an acoustic rhyme, on a pun. Mm -hmm. um, and this is much, much easier to produce when you're a stand-up comic or you're, wor you're working orally rather than or on the stage than if you're reading it on the page. And in fact, if you think about Shakespeare, all his punning scenes of comedy um, tend to be um, you know, in, in the drama and almost, it's almost unreadable if you read them on the page. Um, and, um, and the image language used by the mother in the locust and the bird 
um, depends on this kind of proverbial, oral, riddling language. And I thought that here in Oxford, it was worth just reminding you of the connection of, between Alice in Wonderland and, um, and riddles. Very, very strong in Lewis Carroll's, um, Lewis Carroll's work. And at the very beginning of Hanan's work, uh, Hanan's Arabian Nights, um, we have the reprise of the scene of the porter and the three ladies of Baghdad, sometimes the five ladies of Baghdad. And this is between the, the porter, who can only call a spade a spade, and the ladies, the ladies of Baghdad, who teach him the flight of imaginative speech. And for that, they draw on the wonderfully rich and sensuous lexicon of erotic terms in Arabic. This is a comic scene, but it's actually a scene that shows the difference between metaphorical language, such as which puns and riddles, and gives you images and pictures for certain states, and literal language. Um, and it is an absolutely key scene. And it goes back to this idea that um, about what you see and how you know what you see. You cannot spend the night with us unless you agree that no matter what your eyes may see, your tongue must freeze and not seek explanation, even if your curiosity should become unbearable. And that is the prologue to a series of erotic tableaus which are unfolded before us and remain baffling. So what Hanan's conversation with the knights illuminates is the intertwining of textual bodies with physical bodies, especially women's. Her writing has wrought a literary metaphorical medium in language for women's bodies and voices. She's a femme récit, that is Todorov's phrase, les hommes récits, male narrators. It needs to be modified. The narrating woman realigns her reader's understanding of her characters and their transgressive breaking of norms and conventions in Lebanon and in other parts of the Middle East and elsewhere. Her story, stories give life to new understanding about what women's bodies have been allowed to know, what they have known, and sought to know more.
Okay, so I'll see how I go with the time and how many illustrations I can bring uh, into the, uh, the conversation the discussion. So, um, first of all, word of uh, thanks uh, to um, uh, Jane Hiddleston and Mohamed Salah Amri uh, for organizing this talk and for uh, inviting me to respond uh, uh, to Hanan's um, um, book. Um, so before I continue exploring with you um, the plays um, um, and nights, uh, I just need to tell you um, well the place where I write from, uh, because the points that I will have that I will discuss with you um, uh, now uh, obviously related to to this uh, location. Um, my background is is French, and uh, as you know, there's a long tradition as well, uh, starting with Galant uh, of uh, French uh, uh, translation of the nights. And my research uh, deals with early modern and 18th century um, Orientalism in England uh, and also uh, on uh, contemporary Arab literature in English. So obviously the question of language and translation is, is central. And, and um, so this is sort of why also, if you like, the questions of cultural transfers, translations, literary uh, textual transformations are, if you like, points of entry uh, to my response uh, uh, to Anand um, Asher's retelling of the nights. So, um, in the title I um, gave for um, this um, talk, um, I decided uh, there, there were many, of course, uh, points that I could have uh, chosen to, to, to sort of uh, look into, but I decided to focus on two of them uh, the notion of retelling and the notion of ownership and belonging. Uh, which are not equivalent notions, and I'd like to sort of uh, develop on this. Uh, in other words, what, what does it mean to retell the nights, uh, to retell the nights in English? Um, how do you reappropriate a tradition, a text, a tale, a story which is told? Um, and how, in other words, how you, do you translate an oral tradition? Um, working with your memory also into, into, into a text. Um, and then how do you stage it? So different uh, processes which you um, um, talked about just uh, before us. And the notion of ownership, which as I said, I understand um, differently from, from that of belonging. Uh, ownership is, um, has a strong, uh, um, um, even an element of violence in it. It is a claim. Uh, over an, ob uh, an object, which then becomes your private property. Um, you own uh, the, the knights at the exclusion of others. And this sort of links me back to the, the, the title in Arabic, which was uh, uh, Sahibat, um, which you uh, gave to uh, the, um, your book in, in Arabic. Uh, so there is an element of this in the retelling of the knights, an element of reclaiming uh, the knights uh, from uh, so the text over and Galant and other uh, male uh, translators um, in English, because we are talking here of a book written in English. Uh, we might think of uh, so the main translators, 19th, 19th century translators, were Scott in 1811. Um, Lane in the 40s and uh, Burton, the most famous uh, translators. So, but as if you like, so um, in the dif well, differing from the notion of ownership, there is this notion of belonging. 
which I think puts the emphasis on the emotional bond that you create with the text and with literature. And this sort of is a way to look at the text as, and to open the text to reappropriations, reinventions, and retelling, which is what you do with, uh, with the Arabian Nights. It is a non-exclusionary uh, relation to uh, literature, and it is fundamentally uh, intercultural. Um, so, in a way, those two notions, key notions, will help us to understand how the knights uh, work and how they've always worked, and how also word, world literature more generally works. Um, so now what I want to do with, with you is to explore those, uh, well, two different points. Uh, first point would be to give a bit more background concerning the history of the retelling uh, of the knights uh, in uh, uh, Europe. Um, and I would like to show how Orientalists were aware from the very beginning uh, that they would have to deal with a text uh, that was ungraspable. Um, unregimented, as uh, I, will, I will show, but that they tried all the, set, all the same, trying to arrest what was uh, essentially uh, elusive. And then second, um, to, I would like to go back to uh, Anna Nasher's text and to focus on the processes of retelling uh, and to look into more details as, at how does one rewrite uh, with, or, sorry, how does one write with or against a tradition, and to what effects? And so I would like to expand a bit on the politics of form. Um, so, the, so the first point is, I would like to start with, with Galland, um, who did, so the first translation of the Knights in, uh, from the Arabic text into French, at the beginning of the 18th century, uh, 1704 is uh, uh, the dates when he started, the first volume published, and then uh, last volume in 1717. The uh, Gallon's text was sort of translated right straight away into, into English. Uh, so one year later, you've got the first volume uh, in English. And it became a phenomenal success, success in the 18th century. Uh, by the end of the uh, 18th century, uh, you've got 80 different English editions uh, of, of the Knights. So I think we've got to sort of take that into account. Um, Gallant's text was considered as the vulgate. Uh, so at least until uh, um, the end of uh, the century when new manuscripts of the Knights were brought uh, into, into Europe. So from Egypt and from uh, Calcutta. Uh, so, and this is when we start read, uh, we, I mean, uh, uh, English, the English, uh, uh, English Orientalists start, started retranslating uh, the uh, Knights from the Arabic directly into, into English. So the first retranslation is the 1811 uh, Scots uh, translation. Uh, of uh, the knights, and he, he um, reworked, uh, or he worked, sorry, from an Egypt um, um, manuscript. So, manuscripts of the knight brought from Egypt by an ambassador traveler, uh, Montague, 
And so it's, it's actually sort of, uh, seven volumes, about six volumes, uh, which are kept at the Bodian Library. And so it's written in, in Egypt, Egyptian dialect. So it's a different uh, type of, uh, of, 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 um, of Arabic. But it sort of grounds, really, the, the text into the folklore also, uh, obviously. And, the, um, and then you, you've got the um, uh, Lane's translation in 1840, Burton in uh, 1885, and lately we have uh, uh, Malcolm Lyons who did a uh, translation uh, of uh, the 93 uh, volumes. Uh, but what's interesting with, and I'd like to come back to um, uh, Scott's translation, what's interesting about the, 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 the perception of the translator, what they were doing, is that they, all of them thought that Galant had actually not improved on the Arabic, which was, you know, what he claimed to Dom, but to, that they had perverted a text. That, oh, sorry, Galant had perverted the text and that they were there to redress uh, Galant's uh, perver perversions. So, in other words, it implies that there was a text that needed to be uh, 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 well, fixed in a way and in a, <laughs> in a proper manner. Um, and so obviously fixed in, in print. Now this is the version of the translators. Obviously now, um, scholars have worked a lot on uh, Galland's uh, retelling, well, uh, translating uh, of the Knights, and uh, have shown that, um, and argued, that Galland didn't come with a set uh, text at all, but that the Arabian Knights, as they were published, uh, actually draw from, Gannon's Knights draw from several different uh, sources. So we've got uh, Gannon uh, working with a three-volume uh, Syrian manuscript, which he used for, as a translator, for the first eight volumes of the Knights. So his first eight volumes, and the beginning of the volume number nine of Gannon's translation are drawn from this manuscript. But now afterwards, for the rest, the, the volume nine, uh, 10, 11, and 12 maybe. Can't remember how many volumes there is, but he uh, drew from the um, uh, uh, Hannah, uh, a, um, a Christian Maronite Syrian who was in Paris at the time, and who told him more stories. Okay. And so he, if you like, combined uh, these stories from the oral transmission of uh, Anna. So basically what we're dealing here is was a text called Ben Saint Fidèle in French, so a transformation of the source uh, text that would suit the tastes of the readers of, of his time. So, for instance, Galland cut out all poetry. There is no more of the Arabic poetry in, in Galland's uh, uh, version, which were considered as superfluous at the time. Uh, and of course, all the uh, um, uh, erotic passages or details. Um, so, but actually what's interesting is that when we look at, for, for a source, you know, Galland's source uh, text, or what we find is actually a, well, we find scattered pieces. We find dispersed uh, texts. And 
the Scott comes afterwards, and what he tries to do is his attempt again is to produce a new set versions of of the knights to arrest the text yet again. Um, and so he goes through kind of painstaking process because when so what he did was he compared between Galland's rendition of the night and the new manuscripts uh, which had been brought from Cairo by um, uh, Edward Mon Worthy Montague and uh, so he had the two volumes um, uh, in hand so he, ha he had the uh, Galland's translation and the Arabic from uh, manuscript from Cairo and so what you find in is, uh, um, and so then he annotated the uh, Cairo manuscript in Arabic, showing at which passages, you know, Gamal started the new tale, etc. So he went on comparing the two, and you have that sort of work uh, in, left in the margin of the Cairo uh, manuscript. Um, so I could show you one. Okay, you've got three minutes. Okay. Right, so I'll just show you the picture. So this is the story of the mule omitted in Galon. So this is where he sort of realized this story should be, I should, should put it back in, into my... Probably the screen's good on. Yeah. You can't, you can't really see that It just went out. screen. And um, so this is where yeah, um, he produced, if you like, with a text that is fundamentally ungraspable and unregimented. He tries to sort of, well, fit it into, into, into boxes. So what happens, for instance, is that he tries to change uh, um, the uh, order of the tales, so he brings new new numbers of the with the tales, um, and um, yeah. So I have to skip all this passage. I'm sorry. Um, I feel very badly because I went on too long. No, no, I'm, I'm keeping time if I'm You probably need to go to, uh, to, your, to the section you wanted to talk about. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Which is your section two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, what I. So, which brings me to yeah, the second point, and I'll go uh, uh, through it quickly. Uh, if the text is ungraspable, how does one retell the night? Well, first of all, by acknowledging the ungraspability, the ungraspable character of the tale. Um, so, by not looking after the ultimate vulgat, the ultimate manuscripts, but rather uh, by considering all tellings and retellings as apocryphal, uh, by acknowledging the fluidity and the liability of the text. And so, and this is something that I think you, you did in, in, your, uh, in your book, is that you're not drawing from one particular text, you're probably sort of drawing also from your oral memory uh, of, of the nights. And so, recreating that emotional bond with the, the night. In other words, um, Anand's reappropriation is also one of the uh, ventriloquists, uh, that is, letting other voices 
crop up into our own text, uh, the voice of, of Zuzun Nabil, uh, whom you uh, referred to, uh, for instance, at the beginning, as Shahrazad, and this is perhaps where you also Shahrazad in a way, as Shahrazad did, that is, letting other narrators in, into her text, in sort of embedded uh, uh, narratives. Um, okay, so I'll. Um, so, basically, Helena Sheikh uh, rewrites with her oral memory, with text in Arabic, with text in also European languages, and for a drama performance in uh, mind. Um, she draws from various sources, but also in, uh, inspired, but it's also inspired by the narrative strategies and devices. Uh, which are foundations of which are foundations of the night cycle. That is, you've got skeleton, articulation, and motion. The skeleton being the frame story, which uh, you uh, have uh, in, in your text. The articulation between the uh, being the embedded narrations, which you also use in your in your text, and the motion between 